0: Please take your seats. Kids, I see Miss Long over there. She's ready to take you out to children's worship. So you can head out and be with her. So the rest of us are going to look at, uh, as Kevin mentioned, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the text is uh, printed in the bulletin and also up on the screens uh, behind me. Um, the, as we've got, gone through this series on the parables of Jesus, you know, we've uh, most of the parables we've talked about so far are uh, well-known ones, famous ones, and this one uh, is no different. Um, and again, so that serves as a warning to us that, uh, whatever is familiar to us may uh, uh, might actually be dangerous to our souls because we, uh, as they say, familiarity breeds contempt, right? So, um, as, uh, if you want to read along with me, the text is printed in the bulletin and uh, also up on the screens behind me. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, this is the word of God. And we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, "The one who showed him mercy." And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So uh, we have a, a church uh, camp out coming out, correct? Right. Uh, one of the things I'm always amazed about, about uh, camping. Um, I, the, well, a lot of what you guys do that you call camping. Anyway, uh, I notice on these uh, recreational vehicles these little stickers, I know nothing about this, speaking completely from ignorance, which, you know, not what's unusual about that. But there, there's a sticker on them that says, the Good Sam Club. Now, I don't know what that is, but I see that sticker and I think, if you've got to have that to go camping, why would you ever want to go camping? Because this is a terrible story, right? Have you thought about that? I mean, it's very violent very you know so if if you've got to have a good samaritan to go camping i'll just stay in my own bed thank you right no no need for me to go out and do that so i'm sure all of you will correct me and tell me what it's for and what a great thing camping is i'm all for camping more camping but i just think it's weird that that you would <laughs> that that you would do that so um because this is the thing you have to ask about the story as we as we begin looking at it today is what kind of world uh, do you live in uh i mean what kind of world is this right this is a world where a man simply walks down the road and he gets beaten up stripped and left for dead and people walk by okay so so let's let's at the very outset you know we have to see that that's that's what's going on here in the story now now, the problem with the story is and the, and the problem with this this parable is, is that uh, uh, people take this uh, story of the Good Samaritan and, and make it simply about uh, uh, serving the needy. Or they completely allegorize it to, you know, uh, as I read this week, I read two different accounts of this, you know, one which I'm a little more disposed to is, is that uh, the man in the ditch is all of us right? <laughs> that we're in the ditch and we need somebody to save us. Uh, another uh, crazy interpretation I read this week from a guy who's usually pretty good was that Jesus is the guy in the ditch. I won't go into that. It's wrong. Uh, I know that's not right. So, um, so as we as we look at this, one of the things we have to do and as we've done this throughout the series is if we just take the parable as a as a unit to itself and don't connect it to what's going on around it, we're we're in we're in dangerous territory. So we need to look at what's going on, what what the context is and, and what's happening. Right. So Jesus uh, earlier had sent out the 72 closest disciples on a preaching uh, and teaching and really wonder working uh Mission, right? So they, they've gone out and they've come back, right? And so we begin here reading in, in Luke chapter 10, uh, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, right? It's like, it's like, uh, Jesus is the football coach. He's on the sideline. Uh, his boys have gone out there and they take the ball 95 yards down the field. They score a touchdown. They're running off the field. They're like, this is awesome. And he's standing there high-fiving them. You're right. It's awesome. Great job. Way to go. It was awesome. I, 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 I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. But because it's Jesus, you know he's got to rain on their parade a little bit. Right? So he says, uh, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Yes! Nevertheless, and whenever you get that nevertheless, you're like, okay, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Just as you've had the most successful preaching mission in the history ever, you lowly disciples who have virtually no spiritual power at all had this remarkable success. But I am here to tell you, keep your primary source of encouragement primary and your secondary source of encouragement Secondary, just because you're successful, that's good. And you should be encouraged by that. But the bottom line is that is not your primary source of encouragement. The thing that really matters, the thing that is essential. Is that you, by faith, belong to him, that your name's written in heaven, that that is that can never change. You might go out on many preaching missions and you might be a miserable failure in many ways. Um, terrible things might happen to you. But one thing that is uh, that marks the blessing and the favor and the grace of our God that can never change is if you belong to him by faith. And if that is the truth, your name's written in the book of life. You have a, an eternal source of encouragement that never goes away. So in the midst of that, Jesus is like, this is so awesome. There in the crowd, there with his disciples and the other people standing around, he prays and he says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now you need to remember that because a question is about to come from the wise, and the understanding, right? The lawyer, the expert in the law, right? So part of what's happening here is it's a matter of vision. It's a matter of seeing the world. It's a matter of seeing what God is doing and having your eyes open to the reality of what's what's happening, right? Right? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Father, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Pretty profound picture, right? Jesus is, Jesus is making it very clear that what is happening here and the ability to see and understand and take God at his word is something that is sovereignly revealed by the Spirit of God to the hearts of his people. Next slide. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, right? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Right. So so the fact of the matter is what he is saying to them is, you know, whatever else may be true about them, whether they're successful in their preaching mission or not. By the, the by, the sovereign grace of God, they have been. It's been their eyes have been opened, their hearts have been opened, their ears have been opened, and they see. And as limited, and frankly, their understanding is quite limited, but they see Jesus, right? And and they have a clue about what it is that God's doing in the world. And these people. Not experts in the law, not, not, uh, lawyers, not the wise and the understanding. Jesus marvels that God in His grace is kind of reversing the way we tend to think about things and revealing Himself in this way. So in the midst of this, a lawyer, now that this is an expert in God's law. This is not, you know, somebody who, who does contracts or somebody who defends, uh, uh people or that kind of stuff. This is, this is an expert in the law of God stand now, now it 's important for us to understand that right off the bat, so in this culture, uh, teachers sit and students stand. Remember when Jesus goes to the to the t- uh, to the uh, synagogue in Nazareth, it says he took the seat right and opened the scroll. The seat uh, was called moses 's seat, so the the teacher sits. Uh, the student stands. So this man is trying to fake Jesus out by standing and by calling him rabbi. He is like saying, I'm going to show you some respect while I trick you. Right. He's a real snake. OK. Uh, he is not. A, he is not a, uh, a, a a good person. Right. And so he asks this question, what must I do uh, to inherit eternal life? Now, I addressed this in my letter at the beginning of the bulletin, right? I, having, having recently gone through settling an estate, I am here to tell you that if you have to do something to get somebody to leave you an inheritance, it's not an inheritance. You get inheritance by virtue of relationship, right? Uh, you get inheritance by virtue of the fact that somehow or other you're related to this person and them, they, in their kindness and in their generosity, have chosen to give you something. Right. If, and listen, you know, some of you are in situations where uh you want to inherit some something and somebody knows that and they're they're making it like wages for you. And that's miserable. <laughs> OK, what a what a terrible what a terrible situation that that is. But in this case, this this expert in the law, remember, we just finished numbers a few months ago. How many chapters in numbers were about inheritance? Right. There's, there's you know, he knows the answer to this. He knows that you don't do something to inherit. Right? So he stands up and he says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And so this challenge to Jesus, this this question that he's asking him, is calculated, and it's calculated in a sense to try to get to discredit Jesus. Now, how how could he discredit Jesus? Well, what he's but but I I think the clue is in the way in which Jesus answers, because he can discredit Jesus if Jesus can say you you inherit eternal life by by ignoring or by discounting the law of Moses. Right. Because if he can get Jesus to say something negative about Moses, uh, then uh, uh, then he can then, then he can completely discredit him. It would be like being in a uh, in, in our uh, theological tradition. We have Presbytery meetings and in Presbytery meetings, all the elders and and, and uh, teaching elders, ruling elders, pastors and ruling elders gather together. And one of the things that we do is we examine people, uh, men to be uh, pastors. And so. Uh, the founder of the Presbyterian church was a man named John Knox from Scotland. And so if somebody gets up in a Presbytery exam and says John Knox was an idiot, he's going to be discredited. <laughs> his, his his chance of being uh, uh, ordained is next to zero, and in fact, someone might hit him. Somebody might hurt him. Right. Somebody might might take that very personally. Right. And 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 attack him for that. So if this teacher of the law can get Jesus to say something negative about Moses, he's got it. So look at verses twenty five and twenty eight, and that'll help us understand a little bit about how Jesus sees through what he's doing. The question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then. In verse 28, Jesus answers him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So you, there's a juxtaposition here between doing and life. Right? That, that somehow or other, you know, let me answer your question. If, if, if you want to inherit eternal life by doing, I will tell you how to do it. I will tell you how you can do that. Right? And so, uh, that's exactly what he says to him. He makes it very clear. Just do. What Moses said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Next question. Right? Now, um, let, me, let me be very clear about this as, as we look at this this morning, right? Uh, if, if, if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, Jesus is telling you what to do. He is telling you to love God perfectly all the time and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, frankly, God deserves for me to love him, right? And so it's easier to love God than it is to love my neighbor, I think that's funny, but uh because it's hard for me to find neighbors that always and in every case deserve my love, right, which kind of gets us right at the at the bottom line here, right of who deserves our love here's the Here's the thing uh if you love God one hundred percent of the time with everything you've got all the time, uh, and you love the people around you just as much as you love yourself. Uh, then you got it made. You got it made. That's all you got to do. Nothing's changed. It's always been that way. Okay. Um, now the sad part of this, uh, particularly in, in the case for this man, is he thinks he, he thinks he's doing it. He he thinks he's actually an achiever, right? Um. It's like somebody saying to me, Steve, you know what? You know, if you try hard enough, you can play on an NBA basketball team. <laughs> right? It's a fifty-eight year old, five foot six man. Look, you know, it's there, buddy, you can do it. Come on, right? What's keeping you from doing it? Yeah, right? So once once we get past that, then we have to confront the, the the issue about whether we love God that much. And and if you and if you think, well, I love God all the time. Let me ask you: How much time did you spend this morning thinking about something other than the love of God for you? How much time did you spend this morning thinking about other things? Right. So so you're not loving God all the time, um, and certainly you're not loving your neighbors yourself. I used to think, you know, I used to think I was pretty good at this. I used to think I was I, I did okay until. Uh, Till I got married. And one of the things that I came to to realize, this is one of the the great gifts of marriage, is it gives you an opportunity to see what a terrible lover you are. Um, Looking in the bottom of the freezer one day, and there's just enough ice cream for one person. (laughs) Right? What a dumb example, right? But there's a moment there where you're like, oh, Oh, <laughs> what am I going to do? Right. So as, so as we look at this, Jesus is, is is not falling into the trap. He's very if you want to do something to get eternal life, this is what you do. So the guy's like, OK, you know, good enough. And he says and then we get to the heart of the matter. He says, but he desiring to justify himself. Right. And so not only so one of the things that I love watching um, Uh, political TV shows, is that some smart aleck uh, journalist will ask some smart aleck politician a question. And the smart aleck politician says back, well, I reject the premise of your question. I love that. I love that. I think what a great way to shut down debate. You know what? It's not just that you're I'm not going to answer your question because your question is stupid. That's what he's saying. Right. That's a dumb question. That's an inappropriate question. Right. So. So Jesus, rather than doing that, he he's getting to the heart of the matter. And the guy says, you know, what I want to do is I want to justify myself. He's just like us. The temptation rings out of the human flesh all the time. So he's going to press Jesus. He's going to say, well, you know what, Jesus? Come on, let, let's give me some some practical steps whereby I can justify myself. And let me be clear about this right here and now, that it, it, it is worthwhile to think about how do I get justified? It is a terrible thing to think that you can justify yourself. There's only one way in which we get justified. And the only way we get justified is if Jesus justifies us. The only way that I can, can, can be justified is by entrusting myself to the finished work uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for me. That's it. That's it. And so so the premise of the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life or the premise of the question of what must I do to justify myself is a dumb question because you can't do it. You can be justified and you can inherit eternal life, but we get that by entrusting ourselves to what Jesus Christ has done, Right? So so desiring to justify himself Jesus tells the story. Now it's 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 a world famous story one uh, one that we're all familiar with right? And so uh a man goes down between Jerusalem and Jericho and on the way he gets attacked, beaten, stripped and that's an important detail that we'll come back to in a moment and left in the ditch for dead. Shortly thereafter a priest Comes by now. This is beginning to sound like our typical joke, right? A priest, a Levite, and a whatever came by, right? They all, whichever way you want to do that, right? So the priest comes by, uh, and he sees him. It's very clear that he sees him. He moves over and goes on down the road. Shortly thereafter, and maybe within feet or steps of uh, the priest, it is. It's not unlikely that the Levite was connected in some way to the priest, right? Comes by and does the same thing. And, and frankly, you know, I blame the priest. If you want to blame somebody, we like that. That's, we're, we're big blamers. You know, there's always somebody worth blaming. I blame you for this. So in some ways, the Levite could blame the priest because if he sees the priest go by, I'm a lowly Levite. If the priest isn't going to stop and help him, if the priest isn't going to do something for him, then, uh, then I'm certainly not. And so the expectation is that the third person to come down the road would be your normal son of Abraham, your your normal Israelite, your normal Jewish person, and that he does it. But instead, a Samaritan does it. That would have stunned the audience. It doesn't stun us because we think we're better than the first century Jews who had racial and theological and moral animus against the Samaritans. Right. And so we've kind of created in our minds this thing that Samaritans uh, really were the good people. Right. You inoculate yourself against the punch of the story if that's how you line yourself up. And so what you have to imagine yourself doing is sitting here listening to Jesus tell the story and you're nodding your head and you're going along with it. And then the person who comes and helps the man in the ditch is the kind of person that you think is most despicable in the world. Okay. Now we all got that list of who's the worst people in the world, right? Either by politics, or by philosophy, or by race, origin, class, you know, uh, whatever, whatever you look down upon or judge someone, but because of these things, the worst person you can imagine, the most unworthy person you can imagine is the person who stops and helps. Now, the the irony in all of this uh, is uh, is is dramatic because Jesus makes it clear to us that the man in the ditch is unclothed, and I I've pondered that for years. Like, why is that? An important detail. I think it's an important detail. Bear with me in this. Is that the priest and the Levite, as they look at him, can tell he's Jewish. So he's one of them. Okay. And so, so whatever reason they may have for... Walking by, you know, we speculate that it was because of the, you know, the purity laws or, or, or whatever that would have, would have kept them from doing that. They just go on about their business, right? And then the most despicable character comes along, wraps the wounds, treats the wounds, picks him up, puts him on a donkey, and then takes him to an inn. Now, you probably don't think very much about that, but that's a risky move, right? if you're a Samaritan and you pick up a Jewish guy who's been mugged and you carry him into an inn full of other Jewish guys, uh, it's probably not going to go well for you, right? The, the, the suspicion is going to be on you, right? So, I mean, this guy, this, this Samaritan is is better than good, man. He's risk-taking good. He's He's he is sacrificially good. Right. And so here he is. He goes and he does that and he leaves money and says he'll come back and check on it. And so then Jesus looks at the guy who's horrified by this time, I'm sure. And who thinks that's the worst story I've ever heard. And this always happens to me when I try to justify myself in front of Jesus. He tells me a story that makes me feel bad about myself. So he as he as he does this. Jesus says, so who proved to be the neighbor to the man in the ditch? Well, he says the Samaritan, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. He can't even bring himself to say the words. The one who helped him. Right? So let's 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 draw some conclusions from this from this parable, right? So I think there are three things going on here in this parable. There's a theological question that gets answered. There's an ethical question that gets answered. And frankly, I think there's an allegorical question that's worth looking at as well. So first of all, the theological question. Um, It is so important for us to understand. You know, I think I find it so ironic that the context of this parable is that salvation, justification, the inheritance of eternal life cannot be garnered By obedience. Because you can't obey well enough to do it. And yet, what tends to happen to us, we read this great parable and it feeds our flesh and causes us to resolve to get God's favor by being the Good Samaritan. Right? Isn't that ironic? (laughs) I find that to be a very unusual situation. So, so, the, so the fact of the matter is the whole context of this story is how do you get justified? How do you inherit eternal life? And you do that only in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that's clear. So whatever else may be going on in this parable, that's exactly it. And Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate that fact and to drive home to us the fact that we are needy, dead sinners who need a savior. Okay, so that's one. The second thing is the ethical question. Jesus is very clear about this, right? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy, right? So one thing that should be true of us, if we are called on to love our neighbors and to be neighbors to one another, then we have no other choice. That if the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, One of the ways that that is demonstrated is, is that we love our neighbors and that we love our neighbors in a way that gets us dirty, makes us unclean, puts us in the ditch, puts us perhaps in danger and costs us at the very least some money. Right. So so that's that's very clear. It's not enough to say that you are loving your neighbor who is in the ditch by simply posting about it. A hashtag is not helping the guy in the ditch. Now, I, I, I'm sorry, but it's not, and that, that's that's very clear about what 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 he's getting at here, and that so so what he is saying to us is, if the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, then the one of the ways that that's manifest, if we are to love our neighbors and we are to be a neighbor to another, this is what it means to be a neighbor to the other. And then thirdly, there's an allegorical question. And I, I, you know, I I hesitate to go too deeply in this, but I think it's a rich picture for us. And I think it's, I think it's worth looking at. So the word that Jesus uses for the man in the ditch is the word uh, that is often used in the Bible to describe mankind. And I think this is something that's true. And I think this gets at the heart of what's going on here. The lawyer who asks the question, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, they all might as well be the dying guy in the ditch. Because that is a description of humankind. That is a description of every one of us. Uh, every one of us uh, has been set upon by our own flesh, by the world and by the devil. And as a result of that, are left stripped, dying. And unless someone intervenes on our behalf, we're dead. And how ironic that the one who intervenes on our behalf is the one who is despised and rejected by men. Right. And so, you know, one of the things, one of the, the subtexts that you might uh, see or understand in, in this text is that in, in, a, in, a, in a different situation, if the man in the ditch is not broken and dying and needy and a Samaritan stops to help him, he might reject his help. Because he's a Samaritan. But because he has no choice, because he is broken and dying, and and his life is ebbing away there as he is in the ditch, he needs the help. And so he'll take it even by someone who's been despised and rejected by men. Listen, you're dead and in a ditch. And unless Jesus makes you alive, unless he comes and binds you up and gets you up and carries you and promises to come back and get you, you're dead. Life, uh, uh, your your hope, your joy, your peace, uh, whatever else uh, may be true of you, uh, it doesn't matter because unless Jesus saves you, you're not you you you're well. You won't be saved. And so I think that gets us back to where we started, and that is how do you view the world, and how do you view yourself. And how do you view the question of how do I inherit eternal life? How am I justified? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's use this prayer of confession in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Believer, hear these words of encouragement, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. You can't do anything to get an invitation to this party. Uh, You only get it by grace and by the work that Jesus Christ has done. Jesus sits you at this table, feeds you and nourishes you because he loves you, and he loves you because he loves you. You can't do anything to inherit it. You can't do anything to earn it. That's the heart of the gospel. My hope and my prayer today has been uh, to cause all of us to despair of our own righteousness and to despair of our own ability uh, to earn God's favor and to run, run, run uh, into the arms of Jesus Christ. Jesus sees you. And as we sang earlier, the the human heart that cries, don't pass me by Jesus, he won't. He won't. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other place to go, no other salvation, no other way to justify yourself except by entrusting yourself to the work of Jesus Christ, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he invites you today to be renewed, to be nourished, uh, to eat and drink, uh, to remember uh, the reality of who you are and what it is uh, that he has done for you. It's a great, humbling, joyful time for us to say, I'm the dead man in the ditch and Jesus came and got me. As uh, the elders uh, and deacons come down front to assist me uh, this morning, let me remind you the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread uh, is gluten-free.